Hello from a very wet but very green Durban, South Africa. For those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, you are preparing for winter, but we are starting to heat up down here on this side of the equator. Soon it's going to be extremely hot and humid, but for now it is really beautiful. I heard a line the other day that really stuck with me. Perhaps is the space between I know and I don't know. It's that space between I am absolutely sure about something and actually I don't have a clue. I think that that perhaps space is a really good place to live. Welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but rather uncertain. For the past few episodes, we've been talking about the kingdom of God. It's an important conversation. At least Jesus thought it was an important conversation because he spoke of it more than anything else. There's this prayer that Jesus prayed that we call the Lord's Prayer. In it, he prays, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So in that first episode of this series, we spoke about what the kingdom of God looks like in heaven. Is it a hierarchy or is it a culture of mutual submission? I suggest that perhaps the kingdom of God is more of a culture, more of a way of living than it is a hierarchy. Then, with that as the starting point, we looked at some of the parables that Jesus told, specifically when he said, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like. He would then tell us a story or paint a picture, if you will, of what the kingdom of God looks like. Today, I want to look at a parable that really bothered me when I started to look at all these parables. I seriously thought about just ignoring this one because I didn't really understand it, but then that's not how we roll here. So let's take a look at it. Let's dig into it. Let's see if we can find some truth in this parable. It's the parable that we have come to call the wheat and the tares, or in modern translations, it's called the wheat and the weeds. You find it in Matthew chapter 13. It goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted the good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked. No, he replied, you'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles and burn them, and put the wheat in the barn. Jesus goes on to tell a couple of other parables about the kingdom of God, but then later that night, the disciples are with him and they say, please explain this to us. So I think they were just about as confused as I am on this. 
And here's what it reads in Matthew. Then leaving the crowds outside, Jesus went into the house. His disciples said, please explain to us the story of the weeds in the field. Jesus replied, the son of man is the farmer who plants the good seed. The field is the world, and the good seed represents the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Anyone with ears should hear and listen and understand. Okay, let's talk about what this parable isn't saying. There is nothing here about what you believe. There is nothing here that says that the people that don't believe in Jesus go to hell and people that do believe in Jesus go to heaven. That is how I probably would have interpreted it one time. We see the children of the kingdom as the people who have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We even use language like believers and unbelievers. People that believe the right things versus people that don't believe the right things. But that is not in this parable. This picture that Jesus paints is about fruit. It's about what a life produces. Two things lead me to that conclusion. First of all, in this parable, there is no opportunity for redemption. There is no saving grace in any way, shape, or form. So that's a problem if you want this to be about who's saved and who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. Secondly, when you look at the word that we translate as weeds, it's probably speaking of a certain kind of weed. It's a weed that in its early stages of growth looks just like wheat. But rather than producing the grain of wheat, it just produces this very bitter tasting seed. And what they say is that the wheat grain is heavy. So as the stalk produces it, it begins to bend to the weight. This weed, however, stands straight up. So in the end, it's the fruit that gives it away as the imposter. This parable is about the fruit that a life produces. It's not about a choice to pray a prayer of salvation. There's an interesting word in the original language that we miss in our English translations. In the translation, we read this. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. Some translations say that the weeds appeared. 
The Greek word that is used there is also used for light. So you could easily translate this line like this. When the crops began to grow, the weeds were brought to light. Or maybe we could paraphrase it like this. The fruit of the good seed revealed the hollowness of the bad seed. Or we could say the light exposed the darkness. I think that's an incredibly important point that I'll come back to later. But my point is that this parable is about fruit. I don't think I've ever preached a sermon on this parable in all my years as a pastor because there are parts of it that I just don't know what to do with. Parts of it that just don't make sense to me or even seem to contradict much of other parts of the Bible. So, so here's, the, here's the first one. This parable gives the impression that good and evil exist in the world, and there is nothing I can do, and even more absurd, there's nothing I should do about evil. Don't pull out the weeds, Jesus says. Don't deal with the evil. Just leave it. And then God will sort all this out at the end of the world. But what about fighting injustice? What about speaking truth to power? What about mission? Is the kingdom of God just about sitting back and doing nothing and waiting for God to do it in the sweet by and by? Doesn't the Bible talk about the importance of speaking the truth and standing up for what's right? So, so let's divert just a little bit and talk about truth about how we speak truth and, and stand up against injustice in our world. And then we'll come back to the parable. I've recently finished a book called Love Matters More by Jared Bias. It was a fantastic read. I highly, highly recommend it. I'll put the link in the show notes if you want to check it out. But in this book, he speaks a lot about truth. And I want to touch on one little part of this, but I'm sure I'll come back to it at some time in another episode because there's so much great stuff in this book. But let's start with the disciple John. In his writings, he speaks of truth not as something we believe, but rather how we live. He doesn't see truth as a noun. He sees it as a verb. So in 1 John 1, verse 6, it says, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. He's saying we don't just believe the truth, we live the truth out. Or, or how about this one from the book of 3 John? He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He doesn't say that my children believe the truth, but that they walk in it, that they live the truth. 
We don't have the time to unpack all this now, but throughout the entire Bible, truth is not an ethical thing or not an intellectual thing. It is a relational thing. Truth is a character trait, not an abstract idea. The Bible rarely asks the question, is something true? But rather, it encourages us to live what is true. When you study the scriptures, you find out that truth is most often defined as faithfulness, trustworthiness, honesty, fair testimony, authenticity, commitment to doing good. I guess you could say that living truth is fruit. In Galatians, Paul gives us a list that we call the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It looks a lot like walking in the truth, doesn't it? So back to the statement in the parable. When the crops begin to grow, the weeds are brought to the light. The fruits of the good seed reveal the hollowness of the bad seed. And that is our role in the world, to live the truth. It's easy to go on social media and hashtag something that makes us feel like we're speaking truth to power. Hashtag Black Lives Matter or hashtag Me Too. Those are great, but, but that's not what it means to live the truth. Walking in the truth means that I have to examine my own life, my own pull to racism, my own pull to sexism or consumerism or inauthenticity. It's the stuff in me that isn't faithful or trustworthy or authentic. So here's the question. Am I willing to speak truth to my own power? Because that is walking in the truth. This parable is about how we live in the world. Jesus said that they will know you are my followers by the way you love each other. That sounds a whole lot like the fruits of the good seed reveals the hollowness of the bad seed, doesn't it? Okay, let me go a little further out on this limb with another perhaps. This parable only appears in the Gospel of Matthew. Many or most of the other parables are found in other Gospels as well. So why did Matthew include this and none of the other Gospel writers did? Why did Matthew think this parable was important to put in his Gospel? Something that I think is really important in helping us understand this is to realize that Matthew didn't sit down and write this gospel right after the resurrection. It was many years later before he wrote all this down. I mean, we're talking like 40 or 50 years, actually. Now, imagine if you felt compelled 
to write a book about events of 40 or 50 years ago. I know that some of you are barely old enough to do that, but just imagine with me, okay? You probably would have a reason, something you felt that you needed to say, something that you wanted people today to understand about what happened 40 years ago and how that impacts their lives today. For a lot of reasons that I won't go into now, theologians believe that Matthew was writing his account for a Jewish audience. That's probably right, but you have to look at the historical context, not only of when the events happened, but also the time that Matthew is writing. In 70 AD, which is like 10 years before Matthew wrote this down, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. The temple was demolished and it's never been rebuilt. The new Christian church has struggled bitterly with Jews and Gentiles getting along. There were all kinds of divisions and struggles around circumcisions and dietary laws and all kinds of fighting around who was in and who was out, who was chosen and who wasn't. So now Matthew is writing to these Jews who thought they were the chosen ones, who thought they were the only true children of the kingdom, and he includes this parable. Perhaps he is saying this parable that Jesus told speaks into the Jewish situation because they thought they were the good wheat. And the Gentiles were the weeds. I want to come back to that, but let me tell you why I think that. There's this verse in the chapter a little later. It's after Matthew tells a number of parables um, and prefacing all of them with the kingdom of God is like. Um, I never paid much attention to this verse before, but when I saw it now, it's actually mind-blowing. Here's what Jesus says. Every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. Man, I could do an entire podcast on this verse, and I might one of these days. But I think Matthew is is taking this parable that Jesus spoke 40 or 50 years ago, the old, and bringing a new gem of truth to it. In a way, he's reinterpreting it for his time, for what is going on 40 or 50 years later. See, the Jewish people were lost. Their temple had been destroyed. Their religion had been invaded by weeds. Gentiles, but they could never really be the chosen people. They were imposters. They were fake. At least that's how they saw it. The Jews would have happily uprooted the Gentiles out of the church completely, but the instruction is, don't do that. Let both grow together until the harvest. The Greek word in that sentence is afite. 
It shows up 156 times in the New Testament. It can be translated as leave or permit or, you know, leave both to grow until the harvest or permit both to grow until the harvest. But most of the time, about a third of the time in the New Testament, it's translated as forgive. So you could translate this line, forgive them to grow together until the harvest. If this parable is about relationships between Jews and Gentiles, which perhaps it is, if this parable is about inclusion rather than exclusion, then this translation, forgive them to grow together, is very powerful. Don't forget that Matthew was in the room just before Jesus was arrested and crucified when Jesus prayed these words that we find in John 17. I'm not only praying for these disciples, but also for all those who believe in me through their message. And you could add there both Jews and Gentiles. He goes on, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Let me give you one more clue as to why perhaps this is more about our relationships than it is the battle of evil in the world. In Jesus' explanation, he speaks of the enemy that has planted the seed in the first place. And the enemy, he says, is the devil. The word devil comes from the Greek word diablo, which comes from the word diabolos, which means to divide. It is the opposite of unity. It is that which tears us apart. The enemy is anything or anyone that would seek to divide the unity that Christ desired for his people. Then Jesus goes on and says in this parable, he says, just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. The angels will sort out all those things that cause division, that cause separation, all those things that seek to divide rather than unite. I always saw this parable as a story about who was in and who was out. Perhaps what Matthew wants us to see is that this story is about us, about how we get along with people that are other than us, with people that view the world differently, with people that believe differently than us, with people that have a different political view than us. Perhaps what Matthew wants us to see is that the kingdom of God is about a group of people that love in spite of their differences. 
a group of people that walk in the truth, that show up for one another, that show up for those that are oppressed or marginalized. I need to wrap this up now, but there's one more part of this parable that has always made me uncomfortable, which is probably another reason I've never preached it. It's the part about people being cast into fire. It's the part about the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. There's another parable in the same chapter that's about sorting out fish. I don't like this one either, but it says, the fish will be sorted out and the bad ones will be thrown out. And then these words show up. This is the way it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, so with fear and trepidation, we are going to, next time, jump into a discussion about hell. I say fear and trepidation because for some reason, this is such a personal topic for so many. I mean, it's this topic that pretty much got Rob Bell kicked out of the evangelical church. But I want to ask the question, is our traditional view of hell correct? I do know many people, and probably you do too, people that have walked away from Christianity just because of this. So what do we do with it? What do we do with all this stuff that Jesus talks about when he talks about hell? So don't miss the next episode. And speaking of hell, let me talk to you about money. Bad transition. Sorry, what can I say? But seriously, if you can help support this work, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Skip Collins. Pop in there and just check it out, if you will. Also, I started a Facebook page called Deeply Spiritual But Rather Uncertain. If you want to see pictures of my grandkids and what I ate for breakfast, I'm going to post all that on my personal page. But on the Deeply Spiritual But Rather Uncertain page, I'll be posting about this work that I'm engaged in. I'll post about books that I'm reading or other blog posts or podcasts that have influenced me or or just thoughts that are going on in my head. So if you haven't seen it already, please search for it on Facebook. And then when you get there, hit the follow button and then it'll show up um, in your news feeds all the time. So that's it until the next time. Have a great week. Stay safe. Shalom. Shalom.